Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. In the 1930s, a time when plastic surgery was still developing as a field, it was considered a little disreputable by a lot of people. There was a younger cohort of surgeons who were really trying to reshape that narrative. And one of them, this man called Dr. John Howard Crum, he decided the best way to get plastic surgery into the limelight was by being really showy and showboaty. And so in 1932, at the International Beauty Owners Conference in New York, he did a live demonstration. So he had about a thousand people crowd into this really fancy hotel, I think in Midtown Manhattan. And he strode onto the stage. He had this four-piece orchestra behind him and everything was black and spotlights. And he brought in this woman. She was pale, she was short, and her face was covered with a mask. And the surgeon, he told the audience, this lady, she has been in prison for 20 years for killing her husband. And now that she has been released, she's found it impossible to get work because of like how decrepit she is. And he was like, I am going to fix this. And so with the audience in front of him, over I think two hours, seven minutes, he like sliced her face open and he gave her a facelift. So you'd have the smell of blood permeating, the smell of ammonia, a bunch of people fainted and had to be escorted out. And when he was finished, he turned to the audience and he described it as, oh, this transformation, she has become a new person. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is is Labyrinths. Okay, You're so, looking at me. <laughs> I am looking at you. You're so pretty. Oh, well, how convenient <laughs> for this episode. Today, we're going to be talking about the role of beauty in criminal justice. And to start, I wanted to dig into how it affected your case. Which, undeniably, it did. There was a reason why it ended up being in the tabloids so much, because Meredith was very pretty, and I'm I'm also photogenic, as it were. So, of course, Foxy Noxy um, had those tones. There was even a book that was written about the case called The Fatal Gift of Beauty. A lot of people have speculated how appearance has impacted my case. First of all, whether or not... Meredith might have been targeted as a victim or not. That's a great point. If Meredith hadn't been attractive, maybe she never would have been targeted by Rudy Gaudet. Sure. Then there's the issue of why the police focused their attention on me immediately. And a lot has been said about my behavior, but I can't get out of my head that one of the investigators very explicitly was saying that I quote, reeked of sex. And so I definitely feel weirdly sexualized Mm -hmm. by the police and the prosecution. And I don't think that I would have been sexualized by them if they weren't, in fact, projecting their own uh, 
creepy old man desires onto you. Yeah, I get that vibe. I mean, and so much of the trial itself was focused with interrogating your sex life. Mm-hmm. Interrogating my character through my sex life right. and then guessing about what my sex life was through my appearance. Hmm. Um, I couldn't walk into the courtroom without people commenting on how my hair looked and what clothes I was wearing and whether or not I looked pale. All the time, people remarking upon my youthful femininity for good and for bad. You know, I I hate speculating about what would have happened if I had looked differently or what would have happened if Meredith had looked differently. Like, Meredith just as easily could have been raped and murdered if she looked completely different. And I just as easily could have been wrongly accused had I looked different. But I do think that there is something about how this case became an international sensation in part due to our appearance. And that international sensationalism then had impacts on how the case played out in court. Well, one of the charges, one of the frankly bullshit charges that gets leveled at you from the trolls is, oh, you only got out because you're a pretty white American girl. How do you respond to that? And do you think that you being photogenic, being attractive in some sense, contributed to your salvation? I think that when it all comes down to it, beauty bias is that people prefer to look at you (laughs) as opposed to other people. And what that meant in my own case is that there was a spotlight on me. People liked to look at me. And I think that that translated into me being a very attractive blank piece of paper onto which people could project whatever the hell they wanted. So for better or for worse, people were looking. And the question of whether or not that attention was beneficial or detrimental to me is complicated. I think it goes both ways. It goes both ways because people were more inclined to think horrible things about me, right? but also good things about me. They were more willing to humanize me after they had already utterly dehumanized me. (laughs) So I think it probably meant there were more people who were willing to stand up and call out the injustice. Mm. But that injustice may never have happened in the first place if you weren't targeted and put under that salacious gaze. Right? I mean, a, a big part of the conviction, the first conviction, and especially the second conviction, which didn't rest on physical evidence evidence at all, was your appearance and demeanor. Mm -hmm. And that was largely code for she's a sex fiend. Mm -hmm. This invented idea of you as the sex fiend. Right. And And I couldn't be a sex fiend if I wasn't attractive. Right. So, yes, I, I think that anyone who poses beauty privilege as being something that is a very clear-cut positive. I think my case complicates that premise. But I do think that there is unequivocal evidence out there in the world that people who are more attractive are more often given the benefit of the doubt, Mm -hmm. and they are more often given leniency and mercy than those who fit the bill of the bad person. Right. Well, like so many things, I think your case is a strange outlier Hmm. that goes against the trends 
Like mm-hmm. most wrongful convictions are not women. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, being an attractive person probably goes toward your favor when you find yourself in a criminal legal proceeding. Mm-hmm. You're probably more likely to get a lighter sentence or get acquitted. Well, and indeed, the d- the data shows this. On the whole, that's that tends to be the trend, yeah. But when there's a heinous accusation and you're a pretty woman... Hmm. People really like yeah, to pin, you, right? pin that on you. That Salem witch spirit seems to come out. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about... Those eyes. Oh, you and you and my eyes. So, everyone in my eyes. Everyone really. in your eyes. Right? <laughs> what is up with that? Well, I think I know the answer. Okay, what is it? I was reading this book called The Case Against Reality by Donald Hoffman, a strange philosophical argument that what we see is not actually what exists. Uh, we don't have time to get into it right yeah, now. Yeah, I was about to say that. <laughs> But he brought up something about the nature of beauty and perception, sort of entry point into this larger argument. We all know the the old adage, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Mm -hmm. Hoffman brought up a feature of the human eye that I hadn't been aware of, something called the limbo ring. And if you are familiar with that very famous National Geographic photo of the Afghan girl, she has these stunning, piercing eyes. Mm. And one of the reasons that her eyes look that way is because she has these very prominent limbal rings. It's the dark outer border of your iris that creates a strong contrast between the white sclera and the colored part of your eye. And it makes the eyes really pop. Mm. And people seem to find that striking or Mm -hmm. beautiful. And there are evolutionary explanations for why that would be. One is that various diseases and signs of ill health manifest in the eyes, cataracts or so forth. And if you can see from a distance a very stark contrast between the iris and the sclera, you know someone has really healthy eyes. Mm. And so people who happen to be born with just a stronger border, a dark border around the edge of their iris, it merely makes their eyes pop. It's a sign of health, and signs of health tend to correlate with signs of beauty. Right. Beauty and intensity. I think that that famous photo, which everyone should look up because it's just amazing, is both stunningly beautiful and, like you said, striking. It has an intensity mm-hmm. to it, um, almost as if you are reading something like this woman's eye, this young girl's eyes is like piercing you, seeing right. through you. So people have noticed this effect to the point where you can get contact lenses that enhance your limbal rings. And this is popular in a place like South Korea. Hmm. So what you're pointing to are objective measurements or signs of beauty that exist Across all racial groups, this is just a human trait that we recognize as attractive. So you have very prominent limbal rings. It makes your eyes beautiful and intense. And throughout the eight years of trial, many, many people commented on your eyes. And I mean, you tell me, what sorts of things did they say about your eyes? I mean, I was called, you know, the ice queen with the ice eyes and people were saying that they could see my guilt through my eyes. So, I mean, there's a reason why in the Netflix documentary, 
I don't point to my face. I say, you're looking for evidence in my eyes. Like, Mm. why are you doing that? Because people were commenting so much on the look that I gave them when really I was just looking. (laughs) I just had my eyes open. I'm sorry. (laughs) Shouldn't have been born with those eyes. Uh, Hmm. So good point. There are objective measures of beauty and strikingness that have an impact, both good and bad, in a courtroom setting where judgment is based very often on shallow first impressions. Well, it also depends on the valence that you're viewing. If you're looking at a impoverished Afghan refugee girl and she has those strong limbal rings and that striking gaze, then you think, oh, wow, what intelligence and intensity and humanity there. Mm-hmm. But if it's a girl accused of murder, right. you think, what is she hiding? Right, right. Well, these are complicated questions. And fortunately, we were able to talk to somebody who is done a lot of research and written an interesting book about the role of beauty in criminal justice. Particularly artificially enhanced beauty, plastic surgery. (laughs) Stay tuned for an interview with Zara Stone, author of Killer Looks. The forgotten history of plastic surgery in prisons. We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, this is Cannon. I'm a big supporter of the Labyrinths Patreon page because the work that these people do is really thoughtful and it's one of my favorite podcasts and Patreon accounts in the world. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. Thank you so much for coming on Labyrinth, Zara. It's a pleasure to talk to you about this really awesome new book that you have coming out. So what interested you about this particular subject? What brought you to this subject? I was researching for a series on plastic surgery, and I came across a tiny little footnote in a book. And I was really intrigued because this is an area I report on a lot. And I had never heard anything about it. Over half a million Americans had had these surgeries for this kind of beneficial self-affirming reason was mind-boggling to me. And I wanted to explore this more and really understand what was behind this. Yeah, it does seem super counterintuitive that the U.S. government would expend resources on plastic surgery, of all things, in a world where it was hard to get menstrual pads in a prison. You'd think, wow, plastic surgery, where is this coming from? What is the motivation for this program? How did this program come to be? And who were the players who were pushing this agenda? So these programs have existed in some form since the early 1900s. When they started, often they were really disparate. There would be a prison surgeon or doctor here who would be like, oh, hey, I bet if I like fix his nose, life will be better for him. And these were really very experimental. This was a period of time when plastic surgery wasn't even really established as a field. So some of these early experiments, I think at San Quentin Prison in California, one of these early surgeons did this broom handle surgery where he would literally 
hit somebody's nose with a broom handle. And while he had people hold the person down, just because those were the tools he was dealing with at the time. It's hard to even really imagine. Beauty by blunt instrument. (laughs) (laughs) And from these early beginnings, which generally were pretty altruistic, but not necessarily well thought out, Mm. there grew a greater movement starting in around the 50s and 60s when this whole rehabilitative era really was pushed. The idea then was crime is an illness that can be cured. And it's very simplistic and doesn't really, you know, deal with all the intersecting issues that cause people to offend. But one of the methods they looked at was how your appearance is how people treat you in society. It's the first thing anybody sees and it makes this initial impression. Mm -hmm. And obviously this intersects with kind of race and class and economic backgrounds. But there's a lot of data, especially now, but even then, about how more attractive people have all these societal benefits. They'll earn more, they'll get better grades in school. Even in the courtroom, they actually get lower sentences in general. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, hey, people in prison generally are less attractive than people on the outside. And this isn't in a genetics way incarceration is famously really hard on the body. And alongside this, a lot of people who are incarcerated tend to be from lower economic classes. And in America, where everyone has to pay for healthcare, a richer person might have a scar on their face, see a dermatologist, it would go away. Somebody who's not as well off, they're going to end up scarred. Yeah. And so they're like, maybe we can help them because Mm. one of the best ways to keep people out of prison is employment. And people were simply not getting hired. And it was more than just the criminal record. Physically, they weren't as desirable employees. Yeah, that reminds me of a woman that I met in prison who was a Roma woman. So someone who was definitely on the fringes of society. And at a certain point when she was in her 20s, she had broken her arm. But because she didn't have access to health care, she never actually gotten it fixed. And by the time I met her, she was in her 40s and she just had this lame, deformed looking arm. And I was just shocked, also shocked at the number of people who were missing teeth. Like, I think I was the only person there who had all of my teeth. And I had never really entered into a world before where there were these real health problems that had cosmetic presentations. And it does seem like, at first glance, providing free plastic surgery to prisoners who are legitimately socially hindered by aesthetic deformities is an incredibly compassionate measure because we can acknowledge beauty is a privilege and it is a social currency. But you talk about how in your book there is also a dark side to this practice, the conflation of physical appearance with personality traits, like you're a criminal if you look a certain way, not because of certain actions you take. Can you talk to me about the dark side of this compassion? Sure. And again, this was early on in the development of the prison plastic surgeries. And this is around the time where eugenics had really taken hold. The idea that you're somehow born flawed or bad, these really horrific notions, this quasi-science that was used to perpetuate institutional racism and still lingers today in many ways. You have a nose like this or a chin like this, and so that means you're going to be a thief or a murderer, and you can't help yourself. You were just born like this. 
which goes against the idea that appearance is more related to privilege and background than it is really to genes. But in the early century, this was considered a cutting-edge theory and, oh, we can treat this with medicine. There were classes in Harvard and Yale that were considered well-respected at the time that kind of, you know, pushed this eugenics theory. Yeah, it seems like it's almost a double-edged sword because on the one hand, if you're born with criminal characteristics, then we have sympathy for you. You couldn't help yourself. But on the other hand, it complicates the whole rehabilitative practice because it almost gives the sense of you're inevitably going to be a criminal. Yeah, and that's absolutely troubling. And it goes into the bigger issue of can you even consent to surgery Mm. while you're incarcerated? Like ethically, even in the best case scenario, moving away from this incorrigible idea, you do not have the power. And so there's an element of, oh, if I agree to surgery, will I get paroled early? Like, will I have any of these other benefits? Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty sticky problem in itself. Was that a factor in some of these cases of plastic surgery where there was a sort of quid pro quo? If you got the surgery, you got to go out sooner? It was never as documented as that, but I have case examples of, I think there was a, a prisoner in Michigan And when he got an early parole date in his hearing, they mentioned that he had had a nose job. Mm. And they weren't saying, oh, the nose job has caused these positive changes. But the fact that it was brought up at all is indicative of how they saw this as something beneficial. Is there much documentation about how the prisoners experienced this? Because a part of me also wonders, as someone who has been labeled a criminal <laughs> myself and my face and name and identity has been associated with a crime that I didn't commit, the idea that you could start over with a new identity does seem to have some kind of psychological benefit, even if it feels completely unfair. Do you know how many prisoners opted for this option? And is there any documentation from them about their experience of it? I think the idea of rebirth and transformation was a driver for the surgery. But generally, people would have one or two surgeries. So the idea of completely changing their face so they're unrecognizable was really only talked about in the 1910s, 1920s, when it was quite sensationalist. So it would be like you might have a crooked nose, now it's a straight nose, you're still going to be pretty recognizable. But we do have firsthand documentation from prisoners who talked about how excited they were to have this, how they thought it would help them get women, get employed, how this is something they had, you know, always wanted or something they hadn't even thought about, but were excited it was offered. And these programs, when they got more concrete, they were heavily oversubscribed. Like the waiting lists for these pretty over the board were just really, really large. At one point in your book, you talk about how this history of plastic surgery in prisons is forgotten and it's America's dirty little secret. What makes it a dirty little secret? One of the really interesting things I discovered while I was reporting this is that there was actually quite a lot of racism involved in these surgeries, but in a more surprising way. The majority of these plastic surgeries were done on white men. Hmm. And we know how disproportionately black people are in prisons compared to white people. And this was true then. And so the idea was, this is such a great benefit and such a great gift. We want this to go to the white people. 
Hmm. which, you know, it's not necessarily what you would think of when you're like, oh, racist prison surgery. So what happened to this practice? The shift started in the 1980s. We had a change of president and a move away from rehabilitation into more punitive treatment. The fact that all these great 1960s, 1970s rehabilitative efforts, like they haven't done anything. We're wasting money. Let's lock people up. That was a big philosophy and driver. And these programs were seen as extraneous. Hmm. And alongside this, even the, the documentation of these surgeries, where they were like, oh, yeah, this significantly dropped recidivism. They got jobs. They got married and all of this was really, really outraged the public. People hear this and they're like, we don't want people who've done horrible things to get this great beauty benefit that we don't get as upstanding moral citizens. That is not fair. And the bigger picture, the government pays you know, a significant amount per prisoner to keep them in prison per year. That would be money that could go back into the public sphere. They can't separate the cost of the surgery versus the cost to them emotionally. And mm. that was a big factor. Mm. So now that we're seeing a steering towards rehabilitation again, do you think that plastic surgery is being talked about for rehabilitation? Are you worried about that? I think it would be good if the, there was more conversation around this, but I don't see it really happening while people are incarcerated. I think the ethics issue is too large to realistically try and offer services to people while they're incarcerated. I could see this as once you're paroled, it being something people could opt into and it could be a really good benefit. But I think right now the only plastic surgery going on in prisons is for trans people. And that's a medical surgery that's not cosmetic at all. Mm -hmm. And even that is pretty hotly debated. Hmm. Do you think that our criminal justice system today understands the contribution of beauty privilege? I don't think it's understood at all. I think generally we have a better idea of how racism plays into things and how economic backgrounds play into things. But lookism, pretty privilege, it's not something people really like to confront. I've spoken to numerous psychologists and they're like, beauty bias research is minuscule compared to any other research. And I think part of a problem is people don't really like to confront the idea of how they look or even the fact that other people will respond to them in ways that have nothing to do with their behavior or their intelligence, but just their physical appearance. It's interesting because we're living in a social media age where beauty is more on display and more important than ever. Do you think that that puts us in a position to understand this more, or are we just more deeply entrenching ourselves in the bias? It makes me think of this viral hashtag on TikTok recently, hashtag pretty privilege. And it was full of very pretty, smooth-skinned girls being like, people think I'm dumb because I'm beautiful. Hmm. Or it's hard to make friends because girls are jealous. And I don't discount that these are struggles they have. They're equally centering it in the pretty sphere, rather than people who that's a privilege they aspire to. There's, mm. there's a reason why cosmetic surgery numbers have grown and grown every year and how one in 18 people has had some kind of form of cosmetic surgery. Like one of the things psychologists I've spoken to have said is, oh, maybe one day we can eliminate the beauty bias, but that could take decades and 
a lot of people really willing to work on themselves. Whereas a cosmetic surgery, that instantly gets people to where they want to be in terms of acceptance. And I was surprised that they would say that because mm. I thought they would be like, oh no, we should work on changing this and that. And I think they, they still agree we can, but in terms of effectiveness, they were pretty much, if you just want the results, yeah, like cosmetic surgery will give you that. <laughs> what are some of the ways that you've seen in your research that people have been deeply, deeply impacted by either their own appearance or others' appearances in a way that seems to go against even our base instincts. This story of this tiny little baby, he had this really terrible kind of meningitis. And there was a couple of hours where everybody thought he was going to die, but his life was saved. The after effects of his illness meant that he got gangrene and his nose fell off. People think of babies as pretty cute and cuddly, and he looked a bit more like a war victim to such an extent that his parents actually refused to take him home with them. And it wasn't that they didn't love a child, but the parents were poor immigrants. They were already struggling to make it in America, and they were just so aware that having a child would bring the kind of looks you expect from strangers was going to be hugely detrimental. And so the baby languished in hospital for another year and they tried all different ways to fix him. They tried sticking a nose on his face. The baby would scratch that off. And every time they would beg them to take the baby and they would say no. And they couldn't get social care to even place the baby because everybody considered this child to have too many health problems. So he was stuck in this terrible limbo in hospital while they tried to help him. And this is just a very innocent child. And it was all very sad. And the idea also, to be clear, wasn't that the child would never have a nose. They were like, we will give this baby a nose. We just, we don't want to operate on a kid this small. Hmm. So when he's four years old, we will give him a nose. That's when we'll start the operations. But the parents were just resolute. And hmm. until they figured out a fix, they just wouldn't take him home. It's really an astonishing, like, gave me shivers story because it just goes to show how much appearance really triggers us in this primal way that you could even reject your own child. One of the things you talk about is how you want to examine the benefits and pitfalls of these programs and the ethics of all this. And it does seem really complicated and squirrely because on the one hand, it's acknowledging the social value of beauty and how deformity has a real impact on people's lives. And on the other hand, should we be uplifting beauty as a telltale about whether or not you're a good person or not? How do you sort of get your fingers into these complicated questions? It is a very complex idea of how much we value beauty and what it means. And I think it goes to show the way that people regard the incarcerated is pretty inhumane. To give you an example, Society tells women you need to be feminine and attractive. And then the minute that you get incarcerated, your access to hair products and skincare and makeup is cut significantly. But we're still going to judge you harshly if you're not well presented in the courtroom. Mm. You're going to get a higher sentence. I think is just a no-win situation. There's all these reports about people who get bailed out and then go to court in person versus people who are kept locked up and then go to court the people who, you know, have been able to have a shower and shave and groom themselves and get significantly lower sentences. And 
again, that goes back to privilege. They could afford to pay the bail fees. I mean, I think it's just really good to people to acknowledge the benefits of their own pretty privilege and how this plays out. Mm. And the idea that helping other people doesn't take anything away from yourself. Helping other people improve their life doesn't mean your life is suddenly going to get worse or you'll be less attractive. Mm. It's really about sharing the wealth and elevating everyone. The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law, they were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite right, though. April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being springtime, and it was in that clammy month that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son, Harrison, away. It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very hard. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noises to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. George and Hazel were watching television. There were tears on Hazel's cheeks, but she'd forgotten for the moment what they were about. On the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. His thoughts fled in panic, like bandits from a burglar alarm. That was a real pretty dance, that dance they just did, said Hazel. Huh, said George. That dance, it was nice, said Hazel. Yep, said George. He tried to think a little about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good, no better than anybody else would have been, anyway. They were burdened with sash weights and bags of birdshot, and their faces were masked, so that no one, seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face, would feel like something the cat drug in. George was toying with the vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped, but he didn't get very far with it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. <laughs> so, that is the opening of... Kurt Vonnegut's famous short story, Harrison Bergeron, which is a satirical take on equality movements. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of places you can go from this material. I don't want to go down a right-wing rabbit hole of nobody should be equal, but you will find those right-wing types pointing to this story. Really? As a way to discredit all attempts to balance society. I see. So they're like, welfare is the equivalent yeah. of masks and yeah. birdshot. Right. I'm not going there. I'm for all kinds of societal rebalancing. But this story does point to some really interesting questions that we don't talk about often enough. Things that were brought up in the interview with Zara Stone, especially about beauty privilege. Hmm. Um, the other big one is intelligence privilege. Nobody really wants to acknowledge that 
their life outcomes are better if they're smarter. And that's not really fair. Some people are born with better brains than other people. Well, the counter argument to that is intelligence doesn't necessarily translate into happiness. It often translates into success in different kinds of arenas of status. You just kind of pulled the rug out from under all of this by taking it to the place of happiness, because <laughs> honestly, well, I think we should bookmark that for a moment. <laughs> Let's come back to that. <laughs> okay, fine. I acknowledge that there are unequal outcomes based upon intelligence. Yeah, it's a vast benefit to navigate life in our modern society. Well, let's go back to the beauty privilege one because that's so the one that we're beauty, discussing. Right. First of all, what is the measurement? How has beauty been measured? And I understand that, you know, Zara brings this up in her book, how it's been shown that there is an objective quality to beauty, that babies who are newborn will automatically follow with their eyes the most, quote, attractive person in the room. Mm -hmm. What is the measurement of attractiveness? We already talked about limbal rings. We haven't discussed yeah, symmetry. It's a, it's a matrix of dozens of different factors. Limbal rings are one of them. Facial symmetry is another one of them. You know, how flush or moist your skin looks, distance between eyes. There's all kinds of things that correlate with me measurements of beauty. And the way that people study this is they just ask large samples of people to rate face A or face B more attractive. And then they look at all the data and they go, huh, people on average tend to say that the faces with quality X are more attractive mm -hmm. to this degree of confidence. Right? Okay. So they're able to, using you know, all of these different kinds of measurements determine that there is some objective measurement of beauty. And some people have more of beauty than other people do. Right. And is that okay? In the Harrison Bergeron world, they decide that's something that needs to be corrected, just like wealth inequality needs to be corrected. But why is it, why is that different? Why is wealth inequality different than beauty inequality? just because it's easier to give somebody a pile of money than it is to remake their face? Um, it's actually not. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I think that the way one attains wealth is very different than the way one attains beauty. You are either born with predisposed to being beautiful, not necessarily because you can get ill or you can not take care of yourself or whatever. There are many ways that you can lose your beauty you can have some level of control over your beauty. You can go. I, know. I think as Zara pointed out in her book, and as you know from prison, that the environment you live in and the circumstances you deal with drastically affect your beauty. And things like, do you have the healthcare I... opportunities to repair wounds? And do you have a good diet? And do you have the time and energy to take care of yourself? So those are all measures of wealth, though. So there's this interplay between wealth and beauty that certainly has an impact. But the point that I'm trying to make is that some people are just born with an advantage over others. Mm -hmm. Some people are just taller. We know that taller men outperform shorter men in a number of, you know, success indicators. 
certainly. So until we can go in and change people's genetics, we can't actually impact whether or not someone is going to be born equally beautiful to the next person. No, but there's all kinds of things you can do after they're born. There's plastic surgery, right? Well, can I bring this back to the criminal justice system? I think that already people are recognizing that appearances make a difference in the courtroom. We tend to make truth evaluations not based on objective evidence, but based upon a subjective visceral response very often to what we see. And I think that as we have been getting better and better able to deal with objective evidence like DNA, the old evidence that we used to rely on to convict people and to punish people have turned out to be faulty because we are we can't be relied upon to be consistent as truth evaluators. We look at someone who's on the stand and we think we have an impression of them. Mm-hmm. And that impression informs and colors our perception of the actual objective evidence. Yeah, and if they're beautiful, it tends to give us a more positive perception of them, mm-hmm. probably makes us more likely to trust them. Mm-hmm. So what so, do we do about that? Well, we rely less on that kind of evidence, and we rely more on objective evidence. Already, I think some very interesting um, reformists have argued to put up blinds. Particularly, I'm thinking of ETL Drawer, who has famously talked about making sure that technicians and forensic experts are less in cahoots with the police, are Mm -hmm. given less information about suspects so that they can make more objective evaluations of the physical evidence. A technician doesn't need to know whether or not a suspect confessed when they're evaluating the evidence. I feel like it's a slippery slope, though, because say you have somebody testifying and you put up a screen so you can't see how beautiful they are. Well, some people are also more eloquent than other people. Mm-hmm. Should that matter? Should your eloquence be the determining factor in an assessment of your guilt or innocence? Or for that matter, should the relative eloquence or beauty of the lawyers arguing each side be visible or accessible to the jury? Because oftentimes that is a huge part of this too. How charming is the lawyer? Right. Charm right. is not the truth, right? Sure. And I don't know if you're arguing that it's uh, we have to move into a world where everyone's got a buzzer. Well, you in their got two different robot lawyers who have <laughs> equally monotonous voices. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest thing that one can do is be mindful of how we are all impacted and biased by these kinds of things. So, part of a jury's instruction would be. Ignore how handsome the defense attorney well, is. Or, or not ignore, but just be mindful that you are going to be impacted by how handsome the yeah. defense counsel is, which, again, I think is one of the reasons why the, our jury system is very much flawed, is we put as uninformed people as we can onto mm-hmm. juries so that they're more easily manipulated, not just by a total lack of understanding of what law is or evidence is, but also these factors as well. You wouldn't want someone on the jury who could talk to you about cognitive biases right? and how human beings can be manipulated using them, because that takes a tool out of the 
tool chest of both the prosecution and mm-hmm. the defense to make convincing arguments that are not just based on the objective evidence. It sounds like the fundamental argument you're making here is that the better solution to these kinds of inequalities is not to erect some screen at the job interview or for the witness testimony, but to train people more to be aware of their own cognitive biases. Yes, to have some kind of self-awareness. Now, granted, it's interesting what Zara said at the very end, that when she talked to psychologists who are, you know, therapists who don't rule out plastic surgery because if you have some sort of issue with the way that you look and it impacts you in an emotional, psychological way, there are two roads that you can go down. You can go down the long more difficult road of talking through and doing therapy and mindfulness and and coming to peace with your own appearance and the way that you interact with the world and how people judge you based upon your appearance. You can do all of that mental work, or you can get a nose job. Or you can do both. Or you could do both, but it's interesting that there is a sort of shortcut. And Well, is it, though? This is maybe the time to return to the happiness question and the idea of the hedonic treadmill and how easily we adapt to new normals. There's the famous anecdote about the the lottery winner and the paraplegic assessing their life outcomes to be just as good a year later after their life transformation occurred, for better or worse. Certainly. One could argue that the happiness factor does weigh into that. But I I think one could argue that it's a better outcome for society if someone who would be committing crimes otherwise had a handicap taken away from them and was able to get a job as a result. Like that helps society. Well, I can't argue with that. (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting question. How much should we allow beauty to rule our judgment of other people? And how much should we accept that as an inevitable reality of human nature and therefore try to uplift those who have disadvantages, which have then impacted Mm. them and and the way that they've been able to settle and have a role in society? I think like many things, the answer here is not going to be a univariate answer. It's all three of those things, right? We need to train ourselves to recognize the the beauty bias. We need to, all of us, try to develop healthier attitudes towards our own physical appearance and how we exist in a society that is obsessed with physical appearance. And sometimes some of us need surgery. (laughs) (laughs) And like, that's okay. Like all three of those tools should be at your disposal. And I think the more important one for human happiness is going to be the one that comes through self-reflection and meditation and so forth. But that doesn't mean those other tools aren't also useful. Right. Also, it'd be great if you could get a job without having to be beautiful. All of these questions are particularly on my mind as we prepare to bring a new life into the world. Right. Is our little person going to have advantages or disadvantages. Will they be beautiful? Yeah. And I can say I hope they will be, but also I'm going to love them no matter what. Well, I hope they're happy. Yeah. I think that's ultimately. And I hope you're happy, listener. (laughs) (laughs) Happy enough to give us a five-star review. Next time on Labyrinths, 
our journey to parenthood. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. At KnoxRobinson.com. Where you can find all of our creative insanity. This episode was written and produced by us, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. These aren't the ads you're looking for. These aren't the ads we're looking for. This podcast is listener supported. This podcast is listener supported. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Come on, boys. Let's visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. (laughs) 